Sometimes in the world of UFOs and ufology, the crap piles up so high you'd need a flying saucer to be able to stay above it all. This is especially true when we look at three events from the 1980s, the Majestic 12 Affair, the Benowitz Affair, and Project Serpo. Fasten your seatbelts, because it's about to get weird. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Majestic 12. Sometimes known by its code sign MJ-12, this is a shadowy governmental organization created by President Truman in 1947 in response to the Roswell UFO crash. And they are ruthless. I mean, it's a great story, a very imaginative one, and forms the basis of a number of popular entertainments, from the X-Files, where the Smoky Man is very high up in the organization, which is called the Syndicate there, working with aliens to infect humans with a virus that will make them docile and enable them to bear human-alien hybrids, to the popular Deus Ex video games, where Majestic 12 was formed by the Illuminati, along with the Bilderberger Group, and who eventually take over the Illuminati entirely in the year 2035 after a series of disasters in the United States. And of course, countless books and, quote, documentaries. Wait a, Wait minute, a minute, Mr. Minute, Mr. Postman. Postman. Well, if they're so good at hiding the truth, then how do we know about them, you might well ask. Well, in 1984, Jamie Chanderay, a UFO fan and C-movie film producer, says that someone slipped an envelope through his mail slot one day with a New Mexico postmark on it. Inside was a film canister that had eight pictures of late 40 secret government briefing papers on something called Operation Majestic 12, a group of, you guessed it, 12 men who would investigate the events at Roswell and end up shaping U.S. alien policy. There was also information about other UFO encounters after 1947, as well as a list of the 12 men who made up the special group. He shared these images with his two buddies, fellow UFOers Bill Moore and Stanton Freeman, and they were very excited. These two names will crop up again and again throughout this episode. The next year, they got messages from an anonymous source telling them where to look at the declassified sections of the National Archives, and that is how they found what's come to be known as the Cutler-Twining Memo. This 1957 memo, supposedly, was from Robert Cutler, personal assistant to President Eisenhower, and addressed to General Nathan Twining, who had become Ike's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and oversaw the early days of the space race. Now, before that, 
1947, in the wake of the Mantell incident, he'd been at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and he had been the head of Project Saucer, which became Project Sign, which became Project Grudge, which became Project Blue Book. This 1957 memo referenced a, quote, NCS-MJ-12 Special Studies Project. This was proof that there really was an MJ-12 or Majestic 12. The three men released the document publicly in 1987, and people got to work analyzing all of this material. Turns out there are a number of problems with the Cutler 20 memo and the other documents. There's no top secret registration number on top of the memo. The typeface was from a typewriter that wasn't even on the market until 1963, and Truman's signature is obviously a cutout from another document, in fact, a 1947 memo to engineer Vannevar Bush, who worked on the Manhattan Project and one of the people who helped found the National Science Foundation. Someone just took the signature from that memo and pasted it to this memo and then took a picture of that. The National Archives were asked to look into it as well as to comb through Project Blue Book documents to see if there were any references to Majestic or Majestic 12 or MJ or MJ-12 or anything like that, and they could find nothing. Vannevar Bush supposedly was one of the 12 founding members of Majestic 12, who are also known as the Council of 12, according to the original documents. General Twining was also one of the 12. The other 10 were Lloyd Berkner a physicist and engineer, inventor of an ion-measuring device that was instrumental in the development of shortwave radio. He helped create the early warning system radar setup during the early days of the Cold War. He was a pioneer of early solar system formation theories, and he was the former president of the Institute of Radio Engineers. Detlov Bronk, who got biophysics recognized as a legitimate discipline, president of Johns Hopkins University, later president of Rockefeller University, and then president of the National Academy of Sciences. David Menzel discovered the physical properties of the Martian atmosphere, the solar chromosphere, gaseous nebula, and the chemical composition of stars. He also classified constellations into eight major families and wrote the best-selling A Field Guide to the Stars and Planets in 1975. He went on record in 1968 saying that he thought all UFO observations were natural phenomena, miscategorized, misclassified, and misidentified. Jerome Hunsaker an MIT graduate with a master's in naval architecture, president of the Goodyear Zeppelin Company, designed the first modern airships as well as the Curtis NC Flying Boat and chairman of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Gordon Gray, secretary of the Navy under Truman, he had several positions under Eisenhower, culminating in becoming national security advisor from 1958 to 1961. Lieutenant General Robert Montague, Head of the U.S. Caribbean Command from 1945 to 1947, he was Deputy Commander of Fort Bliss in Texas, which also oversaw the White Sands area during the Roswell incident in 47. And he was commander of the Sandia Missile Base in New Mexico during the Benowitz Affair, which we'll talk about later in this episode. Sidney Sowers former Director of Naval Intelligence, first Director of Central Intelligence in 1946 in charge of the Central Intelligence Group, which would later the next year morph into the Central Intelligence Agency. After that, he became Executive Secretary of the United States National Security Council, and he helped push the United States to develop the hydrogen bomb. U.S. Air Force General Hoyt Vandenberg 
second director of Central Intelligence after Sowers, later Air Force Chief of Staff. He is the guy that was sent the estimate of the situation report from Project Sign way back when, which is what caused him to disband Project Sign because he did not like their conclusion that UFOs were probably interplanetary craft of some sort. Roscoe Hillencoter, first director of the CIA when it was created in 1947. He was on the board of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, after he retired. And the 12th member of the original Majestic 12 Council of 12 was James Forrestal. First Secretary of Defense, Truman had changed the name of the War Department to the Defense Department, so Forrestal was the first person in charge of the department with a new name. He had a nervous breakdown in 1947 or 1948, attributed to overwork and poor health. He received psychiatric care and drugs, and then Truman asked for his resignation. This caused Forrestal to fall into a deep depression, and he was checked into the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, for observation and more treatment. Well, after a while, he seemed to be getting better. He gained some weight. He was in better spirits. But then early in the morning of May 22nd, 1949, his body was found on the third floor roof underneath the communal kitchen across from his room at the Bethesda Center. He was wearing only his pajama bottoms, and an early report said that his bathrobe tie had been around his neck, though that detail is omitted in later reports. Apparently, he had jumped to his death. But before doing so, he'd taken the time to write out part of an English translation of the Sophocles poem Ajax, which he left by his bedside. I guess with his death, Majestic 12 either became Majestic 11 or maybe they found a replacement. Interestingly, around 1967, a rumor started circulating around the back corridors of Washington, D.C. that Truman had asked Forrestal to resign because of the form that his mental breakdown took, which was that he had been running up and down the hallways of the Pentagon, shouting that the U.S. government was being infiltrated by aliens, yelling out loud at one point, we're being invaded and we can't stop them. He then became extremely paranoid, and then things proceeded as mentioned. The 2017 Netflix documentary by Errol Morris, Wormwood, suggests that Forrestal's death was tied to the early stirrings of what would become MKUltra, the CIA mind control program, and was a covert CIA assassination. Now, some people look at this list of 12 and say, no, that's not the list, or no, it's partly wrong, or, or that no, that list is totally wrong. Some other candidates for the Council of 12 include CIA Director Alan Dulles, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Admiral Arthur Radford, Industrialist Nelson Rockefeller, and Father of the Hydrogen Bomb Edward Teller. Or, since people do retire and die, maybe these people would end up becoming replacements in the Council of Twelve. Who knows? One thing's for sure. None of the people who are throwing out these names have any hard information or evidence. Bill and Dick's Bogus Journey. So anyway, the FBI looked into the Cutler 20 memo in 1988. After all, if it were real, what the heck was it doing out in public? And they declared it was, quote, completely bogus. In fact, the FBI investigators rather childishly wrote the word bogus in big capital letters across the document. 
Now, Chandray, who'd received the original film through his mail slot, seemed to believe it was all true, and so did his buddy Stanton Friedman. Friedman was a former nuclear physicist who'd become involved full-time in the UFO community in 1970. He actually quit his job at TRW Systems, that's the company that invented the ICBM back in 1957. Friedman wrote a lot of papers and articles, gave literally hundreds of talks about UFOs, including two at the United Nations, and was the first non-military person to investigate the actual site of the Roswell incident. He even told the House of Representatives back in 1968 that he thought UFOs were absolutely real, that they were from an off-world, and they used a magnetohydrodynamic propulsion system which means using magnetic properties of electrically conducted fluids like liquid metals and plasmas and salt water. He also thought these Majestic 12 documents were legitimate, or at least that the grounds for dismissing them seemed insufficient. The government, he said, was trying to cover up the existence of crashed alien spaceships. And then there's Bill Moore. Some investigators thought that maybe Moore was the hoaxer behind all of this, tricking his friend by slipping the photos through the mail slot. A fellow by the name of Brad Sparks says that he and Moore had had a conversation just a couple of years before all this Majestic 12 business in which Moore said he'd wanted to hoax up some official-looking documents to try and spur the government to break the silence on what he thought was a real UFO cover-up. Interestingly enough, before that, a reporter for the National Enquirer named Bob Pratt says that Moore contacted him and they had drinks and a chat and Moore said, hey, I have an idea for a novel I want to call Magic 12, M-A-J-I-K 12. Would you like to help me co-write it? The plot that he outlined is pretty much the story contained in these documents that were slipped through Chandray's mail slot. And that is why Pratt thinks the whole thing is a hoax concocted by Bill Moore. Who was Bill Moore? Well, he was section head for the Arizona chapter of MUFON. He'd written a book in 1979 about the Philadelphia experiment and wrote the book in 1980 about Roswell that really sparked off interest in the Roswell incident. People had pretty much forgotten about it, and he sort of rekindled the flame on that and, honestly, on the Philadelphia experiment. He then shocked the MUFON and UFO community in 1989, when, in a rather blasé tone of voice, he claimed to have been part of a government plot to discredit UFO researchers that he had been involved in the Benowitz affair, which we're going to talk about in a bit, and he was roundly booed for this. Not because he was a bad guy, but because he was changing the narrative that the UFO community had created for themselves, which is that this was all true. He then came in with this counter-narrative saying, actually, almost all of the things you think are true are government lies. Later, he would say he thought maybe it was possible that the MJ-12 documents were fake, but if they were fake, they were part of a government disinformation campaign to make people think UFOs were real as a cover story for actual secret Air Force projects. So Moore went from, yes, UFOs, to no, it's all government disinformation. A bit after the FBI rather <laughs> childishly defaced the MJ-12 documents with the word bogus all over them, UFO filmmaker Linda Ann Moulton Howe had an interesting conversation with a fellow named Richard Doty. She had made environmental documentaries before that and was considered legitimate investigative journalist. But then in 1980, she made A Strange Harvest, a documentary film linking weird cattle mutilations to UFOs, and suddenly a new career path opened up for her. She's now become the expert on cattle mutilations and aliens, though self-professed. 
She would go on to champion crop circles and other UFO esoterica as well. So anyway, this guy, Richard Doty, contacts her. He says he was with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and he says that the Majestic 12 documents that the FBI had recently debunked were, in fact, legitimate. He then showed her other documents that proved that here on Earth, there are small gray aliens living from Zeta Reticuli. You may remember that from Betty Hill's star map and the whole Zeta Reticuli kerfuffle that was talked about in a previous episode. He also told her he would give her film showing a UFO flying and an interview with one of the aliens, but of course, he never did. If you're trying to search Richard Doty, this is not the well-known surgeon and psychologist Richard Doty. That guy's a real science guy with real multiple awards under his belt. This Richard Doty is one of the most controversial figures to ever crop up in the UFO world. Majestic Majestic by by any any other other name. Two guys, Tim Cooper and Robert Wood, produced several documents in the 1990s that also seemed to verify the existence of MJ-12 and recovered crashed saucer technology. Cooper and Wood also maintain a website called the Majestic Documents, which is co-run by Stanton Freeman and a UFO guy named Nick Redfern and also Robert Wood's son, Ryan. Unlike most UFO and conspiracy-themed websites, this one is actually pretty well-designed and pretty well-organized. They have images of dozens of supposed documents. Anyway, the website is a treasure trove of material for interested parties. Check the episode notes for a link. Robert and Ryan Wood have also written a book, surprise, surprise, called The Majestic Documents. And then we come to Milton William Cooper father, kind of, of the modern American militia movement, who we talked briefly about back during the Moon episode and also when talking about the Illuminati. He also claimed to have direct knowledge of Majestic 12. If you remember, he wrote that book, Behold the Pale Horse, which believed that an apocalypse of some sort was coming, probably involving aliens, that AIDS was a man-made disease to try and reduce the population of the Earth, targeting blacks, Latinos, and homosexuals, that the Illuminati are real and, and controlled by the Bilderbergers and the Trilateral Commission, and that James Forrestal's death out of the Bethesda Medical Center was actually not a CIA hit job, but an MJ-12 hit job. So a website that looks like it was designed in 2000, because it was, called ufos-aliens.co.uk, run by an Englishman who's now a warehouse worker in Tennessee named Martin Kostnet, has what it claims to be an affidavit from Cooper that gives all sorts of code words away because he had special access to government sources back in 1972, blah, blah, blah. Here is just some of what he says. First off, the thing you need to understand is that all communications about this to and from the president were codenamed Majesty, shortened to MJ. The operation that deals with all things involving aliens here on Earth is called Operation Majority. MAGI, M-A-J-I, is the Majority Agency for Joint Intelligence, and they deal with all information and disinformation regarding aliens. All materials dealt with by MAGI are codenamed MAGIC, M-A-J-I-C, which means MAGI controlled with a C. Everything is overseen by a control group codenamed MJ-12. Now, a disinformation project was set up at the very beginnings of this called Majestic 12 in order to confuse and distract from the actual MJ-12, which is part of the MAGI majority, majesty, real stuff. 
They are not, in fact, the same thing. So what he says is whenever you see any document that says Majestic 12, it's a lie. If it says MJ-12, it might be true. Yes, there are aliens here, and yes, the U.S. government has been dealing with them. There are four kinds of aliens, and not all of them are nice. There are the greys, the short, classic, close encounters-like aliens, probably from Zeta Reticuli. There are taller, larger-nosed greys that seem to be the bosses of the smaller greys, probably also from Zeta Reticuli, and they're the main ones that have been in contact with humans. There are Nordics that look like tall, blonde, Scandinavian humans that are either from Orion or Barnard Star, and there are red-haired human-like creatures known as oranges, which are also from either Orion or Barnard Star, whichever one the Nordics are not from. There was a survivor of the Roswell crash who was codenamed EBE for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. This was a name suggested by Vannevar Bush. The alien had a chlorophyll-based biology similar to terrestrial plants, and it eventually died. Alien craft have been recovered on multiple occasions and also been given to humans as gifts. There's a group called Sigma who are responsible for communicating with the aliens. Though some people also say that the NSA was created in 1952 for the express purpose of decoding alien communications. And despite whatever else they may do, that is still their main task. A project codenamed Plato has diplomatic relations with the aliens, including a special treaty that requires them to hide the aliens' existence and also occasionally supply a list of potential abductees to the aliens. After the Roswell crash, contact was made with the aliens, and Eisenhower signed a treaty with them on February 20th, 1954. Later that year, a UFO landed at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico, and our very first alien ambassador came out. He was named Krill, and he handed over to the MJ-12 people something known as the Yellow Book. This is the alien's knowledge of how the universe was created, a history of alien interactions with humans over the centuries, and much, much more. A book by Gil Carson and Bob Lazar called Yellow Book, History of Aliens on Earth, written in 2018 as part of the 21-book Blue Planet Project, says that this wasn't really a book. It was more like what we would today call an iPad. And also there's another thing called a Red Book, which is being written and maintained by the U.S. government. Anyway, Krill, this alien ambassador, became ill, and though Dr. G. Mendoza tried his best, Krill died. Mendoza would then go on to become the foremost authority on alien biology. All information from the EBE Krill is written under the byline Krill or O.H. Krill, the O.H. standing for Original Hostage. Cooper goes on to describe a base set up at Groom Lake, Nevada, called Area 51. To go there, you need Q-level clearance as well as presidential-level clearance, and that level of clearance is codenamed Majestic, just to confuse matters. The portion of the base that deals with alien technology is codenamed Dreamland, and there is a large underground portion of the base codenamed Dark Side of the Moon. Project Garnet deals with all documents relating to aliens. Project Pounce recovers alien technology from crashes. Project Pluto evaluates alien technology. The NRO is the National Recon Association, which is basically the security detail for the aliens when they visit on Earth, as well as for any project involving their craft. And Delta is an on-the-ground arm of the NRO. Project Red Light is all about trying to figure out how to pilot functioning aircraft that have been given as gifts as part of the Plato Treaty conducted there at Area 51. 
Project Snowbird was created as a cover story for the real work being done at Project Red Light. So the idea is if anybody ever sees a Project Red Light craft and they feel like disclosure is about to be imminent, they'll finally reveal that, no, 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 this is actually a Snowbird Skunk Works project developed by the Air Force in secret and not alien technology at all, but it totally is. John F. Kennedy was killed by the Secret Service under orders from MJ-12 because he was about to go public about the aliens. This operation was run out of MJ-12 secret headquarters in Maryland, which is accessible only by air, codenamed the Country Club. Kennedy specifically was shot by William Greer, who was the limo driver, using a gas gun that had been invented by aliens at the Trilateral Commission. Now, an exchange program was set up with aliens being swapped for humans. The aliens were called ALFs, or Alien Life Forms, and codenamed Guests in documents. They continued working on the Yellow Book, and Cooper says that in 1972, he knows for sure that three of them were still alive. Aquarius is a project tasked with keeping a history of aliens on Earth and their interactions with humans for the past 25,000 years. For some reason, Cooper also specifically mentions the Syrians and the Basque people, though why is unclear. Luna is the codename for an alien base on the far side of the moon, which was filmed by the Apollo astronauts. The aliens are conducting large-scale mining operations up there and building huge motherships. The NSA is in contact with this moon base, and that is the reason that we have never returned to the moon. There are underground alien bases here on Earth in the Four Corners area. That's where the U.S. states of Utah, Colorado, Nevada, and New Mexico all meet, as well as Indian reservations in the area. There are at least six of these underground bases, and that's why there are so many crashes around there, because that's where their bases are. Joshua is the codename for a low-frequency sound pulse weapon being developed for use against alien craft, if need be. Excalibur is the codename for a missile carrying a one-megaton nuclear warhead to be used against alien underground bases on Earth, should the need ever arise. Part of the agreement with the aliens is that they can abduct people. However, mutilated humans have also been found in addition to mutilated animals like cattle. From that, the humans have deduced that the aliens, possibly as early as 1955, have broken the treaty. They also note that some abductees have been implanted with a small round device about 40 to 80 microns across, that's 4 one-hundredths to 8 one-hundredths of a millimeter, quite small, near the optic nerve in the brain before they're returned. It is thought that this device may allow the aliens to take control of the implanted human, and attempts to remove these devices have always resulted in the subject's death. Cooper says that as of 1972, around 2.5% of the human population, or about 1 in 40, has received these implants. We signed a treaty with the aliens, they, start, they started doing a bunch of stuff, they gave us a bunch of technology, then we realized that they're maybe up to no good. So there is a contingency plan if all of this ever becomes public and widely believed, or if the aliens try and make a move on us. And this is that plan. There will be an announcement that terrorists have smuggled a nuclear weapon into the United States and plan to detonate it in a major city, but they don't know which one. Martial law will be declared. All communications will be controlled. All humans who have received these alien implants will be rounded up in camps, as well as any dissidents, and anyone who resists will be arrested or shot. That's what Cooper says, and it's a shame that he was so obviously insane, because a mind like that could have spawned a film, TV, book, game franchise to rival Star Wars and entertained and inspired generations.
The Benowitz Affair. In 1979, Paul Benowitz Jr. reported to the U.S. Air Force that he'd been seeing strange lights in the sky near his home in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and picking up strange sounds on his radio. He lived in the upscale Four Hills Village neighborhood, which is on the southern edge of Albuquerque, right next to Kirtland Air Force Base, so maybe this isn't that weird. But he was already pretty heavily interested in UFOs, and he thought for sure that there was something out of this world happening, and it kept bugging him. At first, the Air Force wanted to dismiss this, but he kept contacting them with more and more details, and they started thinking that maybe he was inadvertently picking up signals from secret test flights that they were conducting at Kirtland, specifically unmanned drone technology in its early stages. Well, this isn't good, they thought, so they decided that they would use the Men in Black rumor and other techniques to their advantage. They had two of their personnel dress up as classic men in black and visit Benowitz. They told him in strange voices that he should keep looking into things and then keep them up to date on his progress. Over the years, they would feed him a lot of disinformation, sneak into his house from time to time, leaving fake clues for him to find and infect his computer with a program that they said would let them decode the radio signals he was picking up. But actually, it was just an early form of spyware that was looking for how the heck he was picking this stuff up. Now, keep in he wasn't doing an off-the-shelf 1980 computer. He ran Thunder Scientific Labs, which was a high-tech electronics company that, among other things, gave components to the military. So he had a pretty sweet setup at home. So they wanted to know what he was picking up and how on earth he was picking it up. The whole thing was run by Richard Doty, the man who told Linda Moulton Howe that the MJ-12 documents were real. Doty says that he was an agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations and that he was told specifically to drive Benowitz insane. Instead of doing what you would think they would do, which is simply go to him because he was a patriotic guy and say, hey man, what you're saying is secret Air Force stuff, hush hush, which he probably would have done. Instead, they instructed Doty, he says, to lead Benowitz down the garden path with the goal of eventually making him actually insane. This, they hoped, would act as cover should he actually come out with anything real, as well as discredit anyone else who looked into these things that he was reporting. If that's true, that's just abominable. No wonder people distrust the government and the military. So over a period of time, Richard Doty befriended Paul Benowitz and began to feed him a bunch of stuff, weaving it all together into an increasingly complex narrative that Benowitz apparently believed wholly. Gray aliens were mutilating cattle and implanting human beings with devices of some sort. He started making flights in a private airplane all over the place, and he thought that he had uncovered a secret underground Air Force base jointly operated by gray aliens and humans near the town of Dulce, New Mexico, so he called it Dulce Base. And people in the area, after all, had been reporting strange lights in the skies for a long time, so there was proof right there, right? The Air Force Office of Special Investigations also met with UFO guy Bill Moore. You know, the guy that very probably created the MJ-12 documents. As said before, he was head of the Arizona chapter of MUFON and quite well respected in UFO circles. Doty recruited him, and together they were the main guys in the disinformation drive Paul Benowitz insane campaign. By the time 1986 comes around, Benowitz is compiling a 17-page document riddled with punctuation and spelling errors that he calls Project Beta, outlining what he thought was going on, as well as an infiltration plan for Dulce Base, which he thought we needed to get into too sweet. 
The story he was being fed in pieces was that there was a whole alien culture underneath Dulce Base, a sort of a, a group mind called the Council of Nine, and they only answered to a godlike being named Ta. Essentially, they were one brain with multiple bodies, but each body was also kind of an individual to a certain extent. There was a strict hierarchy involved in their society, with delineations being coded into individual bodies and different physical forms were assigned different rights and tasks and prohibitions. These physical forms were often the result of cloning technology as well as hybridization and genetic manipulation. They all had high body temperatures, were hairless, had long arms, were quite thin, had long hands and fingers and very large heads, and their brains contained crystalline structures. Now, these aliens had been here on Earth for the last 25,000 years. So while they're not human, they're not technically extraterrestrials either. They've been interacting with humankind for millennia, and encounters with them become myths of the gods of ancient Greece, the nine worlds of Norse mythology, the Egyptian creator god Ptah, the secret society of nine unknown men in India, the Elohim of the Bible, and so on and so forth. Some people later, coming through Benowitz's materials, would say that they thought that the Council of Nine aliens, but not extraterrestrials, had communicated telepathically with Gene Roddenberry when he was creating Star Trek. Then a wrinkle is tossed in. Back in the year 1051 CE, actual aliens from space, these blonde Nordic humanoid aliens, arrived, kicking these aliens out. But in recent years, they had returned and were beginning to reoccupy their old bases and seats of power. And they were on the verge of emerging from those bases and taking over the world, enslaving humanity. Now that is a lot to keep in your head, poor Mr. Benowitz. He started thinking that they were coming through the walls of his room and injecting him with chemicals. And afterwards, he would find himself out in the desert or driving along an empty country road with no memory as to how he got there. He began to become paranoid and started stockpiling weapons in every available nook and cranny of his home, which, needless to say, raised some eyebrows. After being the guest of a few mental health facilities, his family just couldn't take it anymore and finally checked him into one full-time in 1988. There, he received electroconvulsive therapy, which had come back into fashion. He was finally discharged, either having been cured of his beliefs or faking it and secretly thinking that, oh my God, he had failed. And he finally died in 2003, having no idea that he had been the specific target of a campaign to drive him insane at the behest of his own government. What we do know for a fact is that Paul Benowitz was a really smart guy with a high-tech electronics company who lived next to an Air Force base and on his super cool tech that he had at home picked up radio signals from the Air Force base which was literally across the street and then went insane. Richard Doty and Bill Moore say that they are the ones that drove him to madness. If that's true, that is quite a story that they concocted in order to drive him around the bend. And what a shame that all that creative energy was wasted in such a petty, mean-spirited, and irresponsible way. But you do have to keep in mind that the only proof, quote-unquote, that we have that all of this was intentional is the word of Richard Doty and Bill Moore. Project, Project Serpo. Serpo. And then there's Project Serpo. This conspiracy theory involves many of the same players from Majestic 12 and the Benowitz Affair and makes use of a lot of the groundwork laid down by others. <clears throat> Here's the story. A top-secret government program was set up that involves trading secrets and technology and individuals between the United States and a planet named Serpo in the Zeta Reticuli system. 
It's possible the planet may be called Sinu or Sopronia, but those stupid government guys routinely mispronounce it as Serpo. Ha ha ha. Dumb, Dumb government, government guys. guys. Anyway, Project Serpo first shows up in 2005 in an email from a person who just names themselves Request Anonymous on a UFO email list run by a UFO fan, Victor Martinez. Well, after a little poking around, some people discovered that the author, Request Anonymous, who spilled the beans about this secret Project Serpo, was none other than Richard Doty. The story that Request Anonymous, or Richard Doty, starts spreading in 2005 is that, like all the rest of this, 1947, Roswell crash, alien craft from Zeta Reticuli, one survivor known as EBE number one. It was four foot four inches tall, weighed about 60 pounds. Once they figured out what food it could eat, it couldn't eat meat, but it could eat fruit and vegetables. Cheese and pasta also seemed okay. They set about examining it. It had odd glands on its limbs, which would emerge from under the skin from time to time. And no matter how much it ate, its weight stayed the same, though its height would fluctuate. It grew about an inch taller in the winter. Its body temperature stayed at 101 degrees Fahrenheit and never varied. It eventually managed to communicate with the humans using images. It had no vocal cords. It could make sounds, though. Apparently, its race communicates using some sort of tonal inflections, like a, a humming language. The alien was not allowed to go free, but otherwise received pretty decent treatment. However, he's a stranger in a strange land, and he had medical issues the whole time he was here. Rashes appeared on his body. Maybe it was an allergy to certain fruits. It said that just before it crashed, it had sent a distress signal back home, and eventually his people would come for him and his crew, and the rest of the crew had all died. EBE number one died in 1952, but the Zeta Reticulans, who were codenamed the Eben, or E-B-E-N, eventually did get in contact with the Americans. An exchange program was set up starting in 1954, just, just like, like Milton, Milton William, William Cooper said, said, though some people think it was set up in 1964. Anyway, part of this program involved an exchange program. From 1965 to 1978, 12 people from the American military traveled to planet Serpo, though they all eventually died of radiation poisoning because it's a binary star system, so there's a lot of radiation. That's according to one story. Another story says, yes, 12 people went, but only eight of them ever made it back. One died en route during the nine-month journey from an embolism. One died on Serpo, and two others liked it so much, they decided to stay behind. And there's someone else involved in all this who says that one of the 12 travelers was still alive in 2005, age 75, living in the American Southwest. And that man died in August 2014. A Project Sherpo truther, who wishes to remain unnamed, has nicknamed this fellow Mr. Hero. The Zeta Reticulans on their planet live in small communities of about 600 to 700 individuals each. They have no centralized government and live in a kind of a peaceful utopia, though it's rather sparse when it comes to resources. 3,000 years ago, they'd fought a large-scale interstellar war and kind of came out as the losers. Their home planet was destroyed and they wandered the cosmos, meeting other races, and finally managed to find a home on Serpo, where they now live simple but peaceful lives. Oh, and by the way, they also really like to dance. So after that first email to the email group run by Martinez back in 2005, 
probably written by Richard Doty, executive coach and management consultant Bill Ryan, who's also a conspiracy guy who hangs out with other conspiracy guys, created the Serpo.org website as a central place to gather all evidence of Project Serpo and expose the truth. It quickly became quite popular, and Rational Wiki notes that the website came out right before a book was published called The Black World of UFOs, Exempt from Disclosure by former Air Force Office of Special Investigations agent Robert Collins and <gasps> Richard, Richard Doty. Doty. This has led some people to think that maybe the whole thing was in fact a viral marketing campaign by Richard Doty to promote the book. Martinez and Ryan both started getting an astounding amount of material, but much of it was quite obviously fake. Fed up with it all in 2000, Ryan gave up administrative privileges to the site, but it's still up and running, administered by the folks at the Outpost Forum. Ryan thinks it's still possible that the whole Project Serpo thing is actually a hoax, but he says it's so complicated and has so many documents and supposed eyewitness testimonies that it would take a lifetime to unravel it all. Instead, he's decided it's much more worthwhile to spend time working with his pal, Carrie Cassidy, on Project Camelot, a massively popular YouTube channel which covers just about any conspiracy topic you like, but focuses a lot on how U.S. military personnel are actually being sent to Mars to fight in wars against aliens. That seems to be more worth his time than Project Serpo stuff, so you think about that. In 2013, UFO guy and former NICAP and MUFON member Len Kasten gathered together a lot of the Serpo material into a book called Secret Journey to the Planet Serpo, A True Story of Interplanetary Travel. Linda Moulton Howe also says Richard Doty contacted her a while ago and told her all about the Alien Exchange program, so she's been involved in all three of these, as has Richard Doty. He gave her a whole bunch of information for a documentary she was working on for HBO called UFOs, The E.T. Factor, but that documentary never got finished. Many people who follow Project Serpo say that somehow Steven Spielberg was privy to it all and in fact received a 20-page letter from the government begging him to pull the plug on Close Encounters of the Third Kind when they found out that he was making it. I mean, obviously, right? If you're a government employee with above top secret clearance working on this and you go see Jaws, you think to yourself, oh, the, oh, director, the director of Jaws, Jaws that's, that's totally, totally the, guy the guy we should, we should tell, tell about, about Project, Project Serpo. Serpo. UFO heavy hitter Bob Lazar also claims to have seen evidence of Project Serpo. Coming out at first anonymously in 1989, he supposedly worked at Groom Lake and nearby Papoose Lake, or the infamous Area 51, working on reverse engineering alien technology from recovered craft. He says the craft use antimatter reactors for fuel, they can bend light so as to appear invisible, and use anti-gravity technology. He also says he's seen small alien gray corpses, and at least once he walked past a room where the door was ajar and saw a human talking to one of the taller gray aliens. And he confirms the existence of the Serpo Exchange Program. He's the subject of a 2018 documentary now available on Netflix. Lazar wrote an autobiography about his time in Area 51 in 2019 called Dreamland, an autobiography, credited by some people as initiating the Storm Area 51 movement, and he gives lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of talks. Keep in mind, he claims he studied at MIT and elsewhere, and yet none of these places have any records on him. He claims he worked for the defense contractor EG&G, though they have no records on him. In fact, when he gives any kind of details, which he does in a rather convincing fashion, they almost always turn out to be unverifiable or blatantly inaccurate. 
Lazar, incidentally, was convicted of aiding and abetting a prostitution ring in 1990 in order to have psychotherapy and to stay away from brothels. And in 2006, he and his wife, Joy, were caught transporting illegal chemicals across state lines because they wanted to make a bunch of illegal fireworks. He has a fireworks festival out in the desert. The truth truth is is not not out out there. there. So we have people like Milton William Cooper, an unstable fantasist promoting increasingly wild and complicated conspiracy theories as his mental health fails. Okay, poor guy, but what are you going to do in a country that doesn't have comprehensive health care? He amplifies and expands on the Majestic 12 ideas that he encounters because that's kind of what he does. But then we have the Bob Lazars and the Bill Moores and the Richard Dotys, who aren't crazy. Most likely, these people are hoaxers who do it for fame and notoriety and maybe a little bit of profit. I mean, they're not exactly Bill Gates here. They're not living super high on the hog off of their takings. And anyone who isn't in the UFO community has never heard of them. So it might be that it's enough for them to be a big fish in a small pond. In fact, the people at the Reality Uncovered Network believe that Doty is working with two other hoaxers, and they have dubbed this trio the Imaginary Intelligence Agency, and sometimes they just call them Scammers, Inc. So here's a potential narrative for what's really going on here. Moore thought up a pretty good idea for a science fiction novel. Tried to get somebody else to help him write it, maybe because he lacks the confidence to do so, or maybe he's just not a very good writer, but he can't. So a couple years later, he dummies up some documents and tricks his friend instead, sparking off the whole Majestic 12 thing, and then later saying that he did it to push the government into telling the truth. Bob Lazar is a former pimp and fireworks fan who was a low-level contractor for a company and then imagined it would be much cooler if he really worked at Area 51 and saw a bunch of cool alien stuff slowly revealing what he knows and yet suffering no consequences whatsoever. Again, if Bob Lazar is telling the truth, why is he still allowed to continue to talk? You have Linda Moten Howe, a real journalist and documentarian, but then she makes Strange Harvest about cattle mutilations and kind of goes down that road never looking back. And then we have Richard Doty. Now, a lot of the stuff in this episode is the subject of the documentary film Mirage Men, and Richard Doty is interviewed extensively in it. I just don't really know what to make of him. I kind of get the feeling that he doesn't really have much affect. When talking about supposedly driving Paul Benowitz insane, on orders but still, he doesn't seem to show any remorse whatsoever. In fact, he kind of suppresses a laugh a couple of times, which would either make him a colossal douchebag or a liar. If we're to believe what he says, he was a secret agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He was part of MJ-12, or knows about it. He knew all about Project Serpo, and he helped drive Benowitz nuts. The thing about Richard Doty's information is that it is almost impossible to verify. However, some people have think they've managed to track down that he was a security guard on an Air Force base and was well known for having a very active imagination. So let's say that he and Bill Moore knew each other and that they had worked together to create these MJ-12 documents. And then they hear about this poor guy in New Mexico, Paul Benowitz, who slowly went insane all on his own. And then they thought, hey, let's get in on that and confess to people that it was us all along getting them some fame and maybe a little scratch in the process. And the reason people will believe it is, why would you tell a story that isn't true that paints you in such a bad light, right? 
And then they also later create the whole Serpo thing. Here's the thing. If these guys are telling the truth about MJ-12 and Serpo, and that this has all been designed to expose what's really going on, which is a secret deal between the American government and aliens, they have failed. There have been no disclosures about Roswell or alien survivors or interstellar treaties or exchange programs. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, or at least some proof. Some proof besides just, take my word for it, I was there. Am I not convincing? To spend decades of your life, decades of your life, this is from 1980, right? Devoted to creating and maintaining these fictions. I mean, the number of fake documents alone. How long did it take to do all that? Why would it be worth the time and the effort? I mean, why not write screenplays or novels instead? which is what Moore originally wanted to do in the first place. Now, way back when, there's no internet. Maybe it was hard to connect with ghostwriters. I mean, there are professional ghostwriters, after all. Get one of them to write it. Put your name on it. But for whatever reason, they didn't. They decided to go this fake a bunch of stuff and we'll say it's all real route. And now, many years later, they can't really go back on it. And they're kind of stuck. Well, if my little theory is true, and if Moore and Doty and whoever else they're working with feel like maybe it's time for them to be recognized for the creative geniuses that they are and want to come clean and tell the world the actual story, then I invite them to come onto this podcast and reveal all right here. Just send me an email and I'd be happy to set up an interview. Is it possible that they all believe this? It seems super unlikely. But there are many people out there that do believe some or all of it. Either some of the stories are true or that the stories are faked to cover the real truth or that they've got some of it right but some of it wrong. And these people continue to follow the breadcrumbs that Howe and Doty and Moore and Lazar drop out there, feeling like they found proof which they then disseminate and the whole thing just kind of chugs along on a life all its own. One thing, as I said before, is verifiable. Over a number of years, Paul Benowitz steadily lost his mind and his life was ruined. And if Doty and Moore were really behind that, for any reason, whether they were told to because they worked for the government or they just decided to do it because they thought it would be fun, then they should be ashamed of themselves. And if they're just simply opportunists claiming responsibility for something they actually had no hand in, well, I guess that's a lesser evil, but it still makes them jerks. Or maybe all these characters are part of a widespread disinformation campaign concocted by someone in authority. Though it's hard to see what the payoff for something like that is. Simply discrediting UFO people seems a little bit tame for all this effort. And frankly, it's not that hard to discredit UFO people. But there is one more thing that we can say with absolute certainty. No matter what the actual truth is about Majestic 12 or Project Serpo or what actually happened to Paul Benowitz, the world, the world is weird. Is weird. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>